First Timothy. Fifty kilometers off the mainland of North Carolina, the Atlantic waters have shaped a geologic wonder. The accumulation of sand off the east coast of North Carolina have formed a string of peninsulas and islands. If you can look it up on Google Maps, it's pretty amazing. You'd probably think it's man-made. But there's about 320 kilometers along that coastline of peninsulas and islands. These are known as the barrier islands. Some of you may be familiar also known as the Outer Banks. And uh, the name Barrier Islands comes from the fact that this is kind of a natural breakwater that kind of keeps the Atlantic waters uh, at bay. And it protects the mainland from raging storms and waves. Since the Outer Banks absorb the brunt of the Atlantic's uh, uh, activity, there's vast stretches of relatively calm water between the mainland and, uh, and the Outer Banks. And although those outer banks have dependably protected the mainland uh, from the sometimes volatile Atlantic waters, the protection hasn't come without a cost. The same powerful forces which created the barrier islands also produced treacherous conditions all around those islands. Really treacherous conditions for, for mariners who get too close. Since there's collections of ever-shifting sand along those islands, uh, there's underwater sandbars up to about 50 kilometers off the coast, ships can find themselves in very shallow water and ultimately run aground. Because those shoals are constantly in flux, it doesn't make any sense to map that area for, for, for ships or for passing boats uh, because it's always changing. The volatility of that region is the product of a, a, a combination of some powerful phenomena. From the south, you have the Gulf Stream that's coming up from the Gulf of Mexico, bringing uh, warm water. From the north, you have the Labrador Current that's bringing cold water uh, from the Arctic. And these things mix there around the Hatteras Island and produces uh, violent waves and really its own weather patterns there that uh, proves to be treacherous for mariners. To exacerbate that, there are competing winds that come from the north and that come from the south, creating uh, potential hurricanes, and there's even damaging nor'easters and so on. A large vessel caught in that kind of weather is in deep trouble because that large stretch of 480 kilometers doesn't have any inlets where these ships can go and find refuge. It's a very dangerous place. The confluence of those dangers has created the perfect conditions for disaster. So much so that that area has, been come, uh, has come to be known as the graveyard of the Atlantic. Thousands of ships have met their fate in that area. Thousands of shipwrecks. Today, even, you can visit there off the coast, and you can see the weathered remains of some of those wooden wrecks still peeking up out of the water, serving as a warning to any other impatient seafarers who might consider passing too closely to the Outer Banks instead of giving it a wide berth. It's not as if that region is impassable. You can navigate that area. The wise, experienced, and watchful helmsman will know exactly how to, uh, how to pass, sticking close to shore when necessary and heading out into deep waters when necessary knowing how to use the Gulf Stream to their advantage and how to avoid it when it's not to their advantage. The, the man or woman who would prioritize safety over haste will be able to navigate uh, that area, that same area that's claimed the lives of others, They'll be able to pass with careful planning, attention to weather patterns, patience, sober respect for the dangers. 
That individual who would pass through the graveyard of the Atlantic is one who would be well aware that if he were to swerve from that careful planning and that attention to weather patterns and that wise patience and that sober respect for the dangers, if he were to swerve from those things, he could find himself, like thousands before him, shipwrecked. What are we talking about this morning? The life and ministry of an elder is similarly, similarly fraught with danger. Personal temptation, spiritual responsibilities, persistent opponents, mission drift, and a myriad of other hidden dangers can sometimes make navigating the treacherous waters of ministry a dangerous ordeal. For this reason, the wise elder, and you can apply this to all of us this morning because all of us are called upon by the Lord to persevere in the faith. For this reason, the wise elder, like the watchful helmsman, should both maintain a sober awareness of potential dangers and a clear-headed focus upon the priorities which will see him through. When we, when an elder or when a faithful believer takes that approach, we can avoid catastrophic shipwreck. Paul had these ideas in mind when he wrote to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, Paul wrote this. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. The potential for spiritual shipwreck is a real danger. So real that Paul actually names names in his letter to Timothy in verse 20. He says, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. These are real men who once were in the faith, but have made shipwreck of their faith. He says, whom I handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Like the foreboding wrecks peering out of the waters of the Atlantic, warning overconfident seafarers, the lives of men like Hymenaeus and Alexander, and you may be able to fit some names in there as well. The lives of men like Hymenaeus and Alexander also serve as sobering warnings to any who might enter ministry or embark upon the Christian life. These are men who swerved from the truth, swerved from a sincere faith, allowed their consciences to be hardened, and consequently suffered disaster. Such wreckages are all around us today as well. And as I said, you might know uh, individuals who started out professing Christ, but ultimately made shipwreck of their, fa- of their lives. These are men who started well, but again, word from the truth, succumbed to temptation, swallowed up by their own hubris. Their disqualification should what? Steal the resolve of every faithful elder, every faithful believer to remain faithful and watchful and humble and pure. Thankfully, like the waters around the east coast of North Carolina, the Christian life and ministry life is also able to be navigated with proper priorities, biblical knowledge, determination to maintain a disciplined self-watch, we can avoid shipwreck. And we can accomplish all that God's called us to do, as we're going to see. Earlier in his letter to Timothy, Paul shared just what priorities would keep Timothy and keep every believer from such a shipwreck. Look in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And so I know I keep giving this uh, kind of uh, uh, explanation, uh, but so I'm going to say it one more time, and that's it. We're going to be talking about elders, but this applies to everyone. Paul says to Timothy, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He's saying, this is the purpose of ministry. This is our aim. You ought to be aiming towards producing in your people a love. And a, not just any love, but a love that proceeds from, and here's the triad that we're going to focus on this morning, a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Why? Because it's when we swerve from those things that individuals make shipwreck of their faith. And so that's our threefold outline this morning. We're going to consider what it is to maintain, to prioritize a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And understand that this is fundamental to ensuring that you and I don't find ourselves with a shipwrecked faith. First of all, in order to avoid ministry and personal shipwreck, the faithful elder, the faithful believer must stay the course in maintaining a pure heart. According to Paul, engendering such a heart in the lives of people is one fundamental aim of ministry and therefore should obviously be present in the faithful elder. What is the heart? It's kind of actually, believe it or not, hard to define. Biblically, the heart of man encompasses far more than ideas of affection and emotion. In addition to seeing the heart as the seat of affection and emotion and desire, the Hebrews saw wisdom, discernment, desire, and intellect all emanating from the heart. Everything which collectively shapes our worldview, our value system, our priorities, and ultimately our behavior flows from the heart. Understood this way, the heart of a person becomes the truest representation of who that person really is. What does a man really believe? What are your deepest desires? What uh, do you genuinely feel? What are your honest thoughts? What do you sincerely love? What do you supremely value? What do you actually... How do you actually want to behave? What really motivates you? These things, the answer to these things, really point to what, what is actually your heart. Is this understanding of the heart, which, which appears in the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where the Lord uh, tells Israel to pray this way. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This heart worship is whole worship. The genuine worship worshiper honors the Lord intellectually and emotionally and volitionally. All that is within him responds uh, wholly to all that he knows about God. And this is a sincere worship. Worshiping from the heart means that one worships without duplicity. His worship is a genuine reflection of his heart. He genuinely believes and sincerely loves the Lord. And therefore, he acts with pure motives. Jesus said of such a person, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In Matthew 5.8. On the other hand, the man who worships or ministers from an impure heart is a hypocrite. Far from God, fit for judgment. So when Paul tells Timothy that he must maintain a pure heart, what is he doing? He's encouraging him to ensure that his ministry is always motivated by an inner man which is wholly devoted to the Lord. 
a disconnect between heart and action or a disconnect between heart and words is what characterized the worst rebels of the Old Testament and the severest hypocrites of Jesus' day. He said in Matthew chapter 15, verse 7, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So, uh, hypocrites, men who have shipwrecked their faith, did some of these start out well, only later to allow their hearts to swerve from the truth? Some of these who started out well, their hearts swerved from the truth, yet they maintained a facade of outward godliness? Most likely that's the case. What is clear is that it is possible to hold a position of spiritual authority while one's heart is not in it. It's possible to profess Christianity and to have that outward reputation and your heart not being in it. If Timothy were to be a faithful servant of the Lord, waging a good warfare, he would have to ensure that no such disconnect ever occurred in his life. His ministry would have to flow from a sincere, whole-person worship. In other words, he'd have to worship and serve from a pure heart. So, if there's any, any of you this morning, men, who might be considering becoming an elder, consider whether or not that desire flows from a pure heart. Do you have a single-minded devotion to the kingdom of God and His righteousness? Are you first and foremost a genuine worshiper of the Lord? Are your motivations for ministry pure? Can you sincerely encourage others to, to develop a love which springs from a pure heart because you personally are committed to loving God with all your heart? That's what we might call a motivational purity. But the idea of a pure heart also encompasses the idea of a moral purity. When Paul wrote to Timothy the second time, he once again warned them about uh, warned him about men swerving from the truth. This time he says Hymenaeus and Philetus. Hymenaeus and Philetus, who had shipwrecked their own faith, were upsetting the faith of some, he says. If Timothy were to protect himself from such temptations, he would have to ensure that he was, according to Paul in 2 Timothy 2.21, a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. 2 Timothy 2.22, then, he says this. So, Timothy, if you were to be such a useful vessel, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. That's a moral purity to accompany the motivational purity. According to Paul, those who call on the Lord from a pure heart are those who have fled youthful passions. What are youthful passions? Well, generally we just say sex. More than that, these passions include the iniquity of 2 Timothy 2.19. It includes the ideas of quarrelsomeness, impatience, harshness, and unkindness of 2 Timothy 2.23 and 25. And everything opposing the righteousness, faith, love, and peace of 2 Timothy 2.22. The pure-hearted elder, the pure-hearted believer, is one who has crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. One who has renounced ungodliness and worldly passions and is determined to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in this present age. If he's pure in heart, he strives to remain morally pure. Motivational purity, moral purity. Maintaining a moral purity requires what? It requires a robust self-watch. 
self-discipline, self-control, sober-mindedness. He must shield himself from temptation while also ensuring that he's actively pursuing righteousness and faith and love and peace. We often get these things imbalanced or we pursue one and not the other. And so safeguards in our lives without pursuing the Lord through the means of grace or giving ourselves to the means of grace while forgetting that we also need to have a robust self-watch that protects protects, uh, us from temptation. And so the man or woman with a pure heart, pursuing a moral purity, on one hand implements appropriate safeguards in their lives, protecting themselves from being exposed to things which inflame fleshly passions, while on the other, he's faithful to tending the means of grace, which the Lord has provided for spiritual developments. In other words, he protects and he pursues. He protects and he pursues. He, he guards and he grows. He shares the attitude of the psalmist in Psalm 119. If you're a new Christian, this is something for you to memorize. Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11. Raise your hand if you have this memorized. Psalm 119, 9 through 11. Raise your hand up. Just one? Anybody besides two? Anybody else? Do I hear three? We'll take this out of the recording. It's okay. Memorize Psalm 119, 9 through 11, especially if you're a young man. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The psalmist understands the importance of a pure heart. He understands the importance of a pure heart to genuine worship. And so here he's taking action. First, he sought the Lord with his whole heart. Next, he prayed for divine protection. Let me not wander from your commandments. And lastly, he actively stored up the word of God in his heart. He possessed a motivational purity. With my whole heart, I seek you. But he knew he needed to also maintain a moral purity. And this led him to immerse himself in the word of God. In contrast, the unfaithful elder or the unfaithful believer lets down their guard, forsakes the necessary self-watch, and ultimately finds themselves shipwrecked. Unlike the psalmist, he no longer seeks the Lord with his whole heart, has little desire for purity, and therefore neglects the word of God as a means of personal sanctification. Elders must guard their hearts. Believers must guard their hearts. It's possible to start off into the Christian faith with genuine motivations, sincere motivations. It's possible to start off into ministry with sincere motivations, but to later grow corrupt or to grow cold. The allure of money and notoriety and sensuality can lead men to sin. Conflicts, disappointments, betrayals can lead men to cynicism and distrust. Maybe that's you this morning. You don't have to be in ministry to experience this. Have the hurt caused by others in your life? Have betrayals by others? Have others letting you down repeatedly led you to cynicism and distrust, making you cold and pulling back from relationships? God forbid that that become true of you or I. We had a... Heed Paul's warning to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul saying to Timothy that your perseverance and the perseverance of those to whom you minister are dependent upon your personal watchfulness. 
he would have to be on guard at all times. He'd have to take seriously the temptations and dangers which face a man in spiritual in a position of spiritual authority. He'd have to be careful to tend to the means of grace, ensuring that he's growing in the love in a love for the Lord and for his people. You and I have the very same calling in order to maintain or order in order to avoid personal shipwreck, we must also maintain a pure heart. Well, what's number two? We said this is that triad. The aim of our charge is a love that issues forth from a pure heart. And then he says what? A good conscience. A good conscience. First Timothy 1.5. Question. What do kneeling down in prayer and laying your head on your pillow have in common? You say... I go right to sleep in both instances. No, that's not it. Kneeling down in prayer, putting your head on your pillow, oftentimes that's when we are most struck by our guilty conscience. Coming to the Lord in prayer, you realize that there are unconfessed sins that loom large, and the faithful believer will deal with those things in that moment. Your head hits your pillow, and oftentimes you start thinking about the offenses that you've caused The conflicts that are unresolved with others, really you begin to think about the duties that you've neglected throughout the day, and in both instances you find a guilty conscience bothering you. Of course, it doesn't have to be that way. The Lord has provided the means by which we can ensure that our conscience is always clear. Repentance, reconciliation, the Spirit's empowerment. Here's a question. What exactly is a good conscience? Paul says this is the aim of our charge, a love which issues forth from a pure heart and from a good conscience. So what is conscience? What is a good conscience, I should say? Well, early on in this series, and by the way, we are almost done this series. I've been saying for three or four weeks. Uh, early on, we, we talked about a phrase, above reproach, and that every elder is required to be above reproach, as is every believer. And we defined it this way. To be above reproach is to be beyond blame, to be unaccusable. It means that there is nothing in a man's character or lifestyle which could open him up to legitimate criticism. There's nothing which would cause others to undermine or dismiss his ministry as an ambassador of Christ. There are no glaring character faults which might weaken his credibility and cause others to have a hard time accepting his teaching. That's what it is to be above reproach. And so I would say a shorthand or a quick way to define a good conscience would simply to say it's a personal confidence that one has remained above reproach. It's a personal confidence that one has remained above reproach. It's a self-evaluation, which sees no outstanding reason why we might be legitimately blamed or accused by others or before the Lord. Of course, that evaluation is made with an awareness that none of us are perfect, Yet, even with that caveat, Paul could confidently testify this. He says, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Acts 24, 16. And, brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Acts 23, 1. The man with a good conscience is a man who takes pains to live before God and men honorably. Spiritually, he has a healthy reverential fear of God and seeks to order his life in obedience to him. Personally, he has a character shaped by the principles of God's word. Relationally, he's known to be a man of integrity and sincerity and honesty. He is fair, equitable, honest. He's just in his dealings with others. When he sins, he's quick to repent. When he offends, he's quick to reconcile. So that when he comes before the Lord to worship, he can be confident that the Lord will hear him. 
As for those men in ministry, a clear conscience is also maintained by knowing that he's faithful to the Lord's calling in his life. If an elder or a believer are to avoid personal and ministry shipwreck, they must consistently maintain a good conscience. Paul said to Timothy, again, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Further, Paul ensured that only such men could even be appointed to the office of deacon. In 1 Timothy 3.9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. This was in contrast to the false teachers, who the Bible says had consciences which were seared and defiled. In what areas must we maintain a good conscience? First of all, towards the world. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. This is going to be relevant and helpful for all of us. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14 through 16. Peter here shows us the power of a good conscience. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14 through 16, he says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. The ability to handle slander, those reviling us, accusation, and to be able to stand up under that slander or that accusation with peace, how is that possible? Well, Peter tells us through a good conscience. A good conscience provides powerful assurances when you or I are slandered by others. Christians have always faced a measure of hostility from the culture, always will face a measure of hostility from the culture. We preach a gospel that confounds human wisdom. We preach a gospel that offends human sensibilities. We seek to live and preach a life of holiness, which just naturally condemns the lawlessness of our culture. For these reasons, the culture will hate believers just as they hated Christ. That will always be the case until Christ returns. So then, is every criticism or accusation against Christians then to be dismissed out of hand? No. Sometimes the rejection which Christians experience is well-deserved. That is, through harshness or hypocrisy or hostility, believers sometimes become their own worst enemy. Forgetting that the gospel is an offense in and of itself, they share the gospel offensively. Or... In calling out the sins of the culture, they sometimes turn a blind eye to the obvious sins of the church. In these instances, they have failed to maintain a good conscience. According to Peter, when we are suffering for righteousness' sake, if we answer our opponents with gentleness and respect, we have no need to fear or to be troubled. There's a confidence which accompanies a good conscience. Even the evil slander of a hostile culture can roll off the back of a man or a woman who has maintained a good conscience. He's been faithful to his Lord. He's been blameless before others. And therefore, he can handle it when others oppose him. On the other hand, if that same slander has an element of truth to it, what if a man is not being reviled for his good behavior, but for his misbehavior? Instead of the culture being put to shame, that man is put to shame. He no longer has a good conscience before God and others, but instead misrepresented God and offended others. A faithful elder, a faithful believer, 
is ever watchful and on guard against such a scenario. He strives to maintain a good conscience through obedience. Obedience in his relationship to God, obedience in how he responds to people in and outside the church. So that when slander, when accusations come, he's not overcome with feelings of insecurity or fear or doubt because his conscience is clear. When situations like that arise, he can say with the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 13, 18, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. A clear conscience towards the world. Next of all, this is specifically focused on elders, I think, a good conscience in ministry. A faithful elder not only maintains a good conscience by dealing honorably with the world, but he does so through faithfulness in his ministry. After Paul wrote three chapters of instruction to Timothy regarding what he must teach, he then said this in 1 Timothy 4, 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the doctrine that you have followed. That's a pretty good assurance. Timothy, if you teach these things, put put these things in front of the believers, you'll be a good servant. What he's saying to Timothy is, do these things and you can have a clear conscience. We're going to deal more with the ministry of the Word, hopefully next week. So we'll just touch on it here. But it's enough to point out that it was Timothy's faithfulness in teaching apostolic doctrine, which would grant him the confidence that he was a good servant of Jesus Christ. This is very important. This is very important for elders. If you're a man who desires to preach, even if you're not going to be an elder, but you'd like to preach, this is important for you to understand. There is no other element of ministry which brings greater feelings of self-doubt than the preaching of the Word of God. It shouldn't be this way, but our flesh makes it this way. After hours of study, hours of preparation, Prayerfulness, I mean, this is the moment right now, right? This is the culmination of that work and that labor. To what? Unknown results. I'm almost tempted to have an altar call just so I can see some evidence that this is somewhat effective. That's, I think, why some men do altar calls. But there's no fanfare, no immediate evidence or fruit. In fact, sometimes the only feedback one receives is negative. You feeling sorry for me yet? I'll keep going. Pile this on top of the preacher's existing insecurities, and that could be a potential recipe for continual discouragement. So what's the cure? A good conscience. How do you come about that good conscience? A preacher's confidence should not come from positive feedback or personal feelings, but from the knowledge that he has faithfully taught sound doctrine from a pure heart. His faithfulness grants him a clear conscience before God and others, and this is what sustains him. Gives himself to preaching the word week in and week out. You know, I can receive a message from somebody that says, you know what, uh, we've decided we're going to move on to a different church. Okay. That's sad. That's, that could be discouraging. But then you, the immediate thought then is, have we been faithful? Have we handled people well? Have we preached the word of God faithfully? And if that's the case, then I think that we can have a good conscience, stay encouraged, keep at it, Keep laboring. Considering this potential for discouragement and self-doubt, a clear conscience should be coveted by the faithful elder. So therefore drive him to keep a close watch on himself and on the teaching. 
Paul gave Timothy similar encouragement in his second letter, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. And how would he do that? A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. No matter how others might respond to the teaching and preaching of the word of God, the faithful elder can stand unashamed in confidence of God's approval when he's careful to properly handle and accurately teach the scripture. This attitude will not only protect the faithful elder from discouragement, but will strengthen him against temptations to deviate from sound doctrine. More precious to him than human accolades is the ability to stand before God with a clear conscience, knowing that the Lord approves of his ministry, regardless of how it might be received by others. Well, in addition to maintaining a good conscience and ensuring he preaches a sound message, the faithful elder is also careful to always use sound methods. Paul reminded the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul's answering slander here. He's answering critics. And how does he do it? He simply points out the fact that he and his companions in conducting their ministry never used disgraceful, deceptive, or secretive means. They never did that to secure the obedience of others. There's no need for deception. They didn't alter or misrepresent the Word of God. Instead, what did they do? They simply taught the Word plainly and openly. I mean, check it out. We, we simply preach the Word. Uh, check us. Go to the Scriptures. See it for yourself. This provided Paul with a clear conscience so that he could add, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. That is, any honest observer should be able to look at how we conducted ministry and how we preached and see that we uh, are above reproach. He had previously written similarly in 2 Corinthians 1.12. He says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. And so Paul can answer his critics, and he can do it with a clear conscience because he knew that his ministry was characterized by purity and godliness and sincerity. He did not resort to human wisdom, but instead rested in the grace of God. And so too, the faithful elder should pursue a clear conscience by using only the Lord's means for ministry. Next of all, the faithful elder pursues a good conscience in how he interacts with the world, how he carries out his ministry in both message and methods, and next of all, in how he interacts with others within the church. The faithful elder's good conscience not only stems from his life of moral purity and his fidelity to good doctrine and his honorable dealings in the world and his commitment to using the Lord's means in ministry, but also from loving interactions with others in the body of Christ. Now, again, this could be a lengthy discussion, Basically, we could summarize membership matters, but ultimately ministry is about people. And as such, the elder will constantly interact with men and women of varying personalities. The possibility of offense, offenses in the church are, are so great, especially when you are in a position of authority, leadership. The faithful elder in maintaining a good conscience will ensure that his interactions with others are unoffensive and gracious. 
when offenses do occur, he's sick, uh, he's quick to seek uh, reconciliation. If it's his fault, he quickly repents, seeks forgiveness. If others have offended him, he must consider whether or not he can be mature and simply absorb that hurt and keep on loving. And by the way, that's the measure of whether or not you can absorb a hurt without seeking uh, reconciliation that way. If you can simply absorb the hurt and keep on loving, that's not the same as saying, oh, I'm not going to approach that person who's offended me. Uh, meanwhile, you're harboring bitterness and unforgiveness. But if you can absorb a hurt and keep on loving, then maybe you don't have to approach that brother. If others offend him, he considers whether or not he can absorb the hurt and keep on loving, or if necessary, lovingly approach that brother to seek restoration, to seek unity. In either case, his goal is to maintain a clear conscience before his brothers and the Lord. So, before we get to our last point here, a little bit of a recap. The aim of our charge, Paul says, is a love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Timothy, this is what you're seeking to engender in the lives of people. And so that's our calling. This is the goal for you as well. And so this should be the product of teaching like this, is so that even in you, a love is developed, uh, which stems from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Again, Paul's warning, certain people having swerved from those have shipwrecked their faith. And so that brings us to our final point. And this is a lot quicker than the other ones, so don't panic. There's a threefold aim of ministry, which is a love which issues forth from a pure heart and a good conscience, and lastly, a sincere faith. A sincere faith. A faithful elder sees his ministry as that of teaching the Lord's message, using the Lord's means to see the Lord's produce a people who love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, which means he's got to embody the same. Take again, for instance, Timothy. Although Paul told Timothy that the aim of ministry ought to be a love which issues forth from a sincere faith, he also said this about Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.5. He says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. St. Timothy, the aim of ministry is a love that issues forth from a sincere faith. He's saying, I, I already know that you have a sincere faith. Your mom had the sincere faith, your grandma had the sincere faith, and I think you possess that as well. This is talking about genuine salvation. Some people attach themselves to Jesus because they're looking for community. If you're here this morning just because you want a social club, you're here for the wrong reasons. Some people attach themselves to Jesus because they're looking for a cause to defend. I just want to be part of something bigger than myself. Okay, if that's you, you're here for the wrong reasons. Some people follow Jesus because... They just think they're going to have some comforts to enjoy, prosperity. If that's you, you're following Jesus for the wrong reasons. The genuine believer, however, follows Jesus because he sincerely believes that Christ is the Savior of the world and the Lord of all. Such a person loves and trusts Jesus with their entire lives. Timothy was just such a man. When one looked at Timothy's life, it was self-evident that he was a genuine believer. He sincerely loved the Lord, just like his mom, just like his grandma. Ministry for him was clearly more than a vocation. It was a life of service rendered to the Lord whom he loved. And so everything we've seen in this message can flow, can only flow from a regenerate heart. Look up Hebrews chapter 10. I think this will be our last passage. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. 
What we're going to see is that each of these the, the threefold facets of love, which are to be the aim of an elder's ministry, are the product of genuine salvation. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Through the blood of Jesus, we can not only approach the living God, but we can do so with confidence. Why? Because he stands as our high priest, and so we can draw near. And what, is, what does the writer of Hebrews say? With a true heart, a clean conscience, and full assurance of faith. These three are the products of salvation. All, and according to Paul, these are the aim of faithful ministry. We'd be naive this morning to think that everyone who holds the office of elder is a genuine believer. Is that shocking to you? Some may be self-deceived. Some may be out-and-out charlatans. Regardless, it's incumbent upon every elder and every man who desires to be an elder and everyone who claims the name of Christ, actually, to do some self-examination to ensure that he has a sincere faith. If he does not first possess a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, then it's going to be an impossibility for him to see that engendered in others. And also, frankly, he'll end up upsetting the faith of others. If such examination leads a man to believe that he does possess a sincere faith, then he should be diligent and watchful and sober-minded and self-controlled and self-disciplined, ensuring that he continues to grow in a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, so that it can be never said of him that he swerved from these things and therefore made shipwreck of his faith. In conclusion, an elder's pure heart and good conscience and sincere faith are not static. That is... Either we grow or we recede. For this reason, the faithful elder must be ever watchful. Paul, concerned that false teachers might arise from among the Ephesian elders, warned them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Peter warned fellow elders, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. John warned the church, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. If we would be determined to avoid personal and ministry shipwreck, then we must take those warnings seriously and remain vigilant. Like Paul, we must exercise self-control and personal discipline. He said... In 1 Corinthians 9, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The potential for shipwreck and disqualification are real. The potential for shipwreck and disqualification should be sobering thoughts for the faithful elder, for the faithful believer, sobering enough that they drive us to keep a close watch on ourselves. Sobering enough that it drives the elder to keep a close watch on himself and on the teaching. Sobering enough that it leads him to protect the purity of his heart. Sobering enough that it leads him to aim to always maintain a good conscience. 
and to ensure that his faith is sincere. With that confidence, then, he should minister to others, seeking to see them develop the very same love, which flows from the very same triad of virtues. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you'd help us to persevere. Lord, we know that all who belong to you, who have genuinely been called, will be glorified. But we also know that you've given us means for perseverance. So help us to tend to those means, to pursue the developments, maturity of this love that proceeds from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Help us to do self-examination. Help us to ensure that we are utilizing your means, not being neglectful. For those men who desire ministry, desire to be elders, I pray that you'd impress the seriousness of this charge upon them. They would make this their aim in ministry and their aim of personal development and growth. And we pray this morning for those who may be here who are self-deceived. They may be claiming the name of Christ. They may be following for the wrong reasons. We pray that you would bring them to repentance, that you'll reveal to them or expose the insincerity of their faith and that they would come to genuine saving faith in Christ. We pray for those who are not yet believers. I pray that they would see their need for Jesus so that they too can be cleansed, that they too can be sprinkled from an evil conscience, that they too could then develop uh, this very same love. So Lord, we pray that you'd use your word in varying ways in the different hearts that are represented here this morning. Lord, we thank you for this, and we especially thank you for Jesus, uh, who's made all of this possible. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.